the uh, <coughs> next section of uh, the, uh, this uh, book, Stillness Flowing, uh, in this uh, section uh, on meditation practice, is called Ways and Means. And the first part is called Skillful Means. The hindrances do not appear in the mind as the result of meditation. Rather, it is that meditation reveals hindrances that are already latent within the mind, but which are difficult to isolate and deal with effectively in daily life. Meditation might be compared to putting the mind under a microscope in order to, in order to see the harmful viruses, invisible to the naked eye, that are threatening its health. Lung Po reminded his disciples that encountering the hindrances in meditation should not be a source of discouragement. In dealing with hindrances, meditators are getting to know how the mind worked and how to deal with it most effectively. He said that meditators should be constantly observing and reviewing what worked in their meditation and what did not. They should treat their mind as parents did a child, expressing a measured appreciation and encouragement when it did well, being consistently firm and fair when it needed admonishment. The untrained mind was like a willful child that followed its moods and often got into mischief. The meditator was not to smother the mind with overly close attention, but to keep a constant eye on it wherever it might go and to prevent it from falling into danger. Learning from mistakes and being creative in finding ways to deal with problems that arose in meditation were good things. At the same time, care should be taken not to develop so many skillful means that the essential simplicity of the practice was forgotten and more harm done than good. So this term, skillful means, it's an English rendering of the, um, the Pali word upaya. So it's a kind of Buddhist jargon word in ordinary English. I think skillful means, what, is, what does that mean? <laughs> but it's a, a, um, a Pali term and it refers to various different approaches or ideas or principles or techniques, uh, different things that, uh, that might be used for particular tasks of work in dealing with, with the mind and its, its habits, its tendencies and so forth. Also, I think Ajahn Jayasaro's comment here about um, meditation is like putting the mind under a microscope. Um, uh, and just as when you take a drop of water and, and put it under a microscope, you can be kind of, <clears throat> kind of shocked by all the kind of little bugs and, and creatures, different things swimming around in a, a seemingly um, innocent drop of water, let alone looking at our skin and all of the, the bacteria and colonies of different uh, microorganisms living on our skin. Um, the uh, the uh, impression that many people get when they start to meditate is that, you know, and this is something that um, it comes up in Lumpur Cha's comments, Lumpur Sumato's comments, where they say, you know, before I started to meditate, meditate, I thought I was quite a nice person, you know, generally liberal and friendly, you know, non-violent, uh, easygoing, uh, try to get on with people, um, you know, reasonably good person. Then I sit down to meditate, and it seems like my mind is just filled with you know, jealousy and fear and anger and lust and laziness and uh, what they call a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> so you have uh, all, f uh, all five and a few extra hindrances all, all happening at the same time. But it's rather like putting your skin under a microscope or a drop of water or whatever, uh, that uh, by looking close up it can be quite uh, alarming or startling. Um, 
and so that uh, sometimes it's very discouraging. Think, well, I was I was fine before I started meditating. <laughs> There's all this horrible stuff in my mind, but uh, the way he puts it here is um, uh, uh, is very helpful. I think in terms of saying it's how uh, how we get to know what has been influencing the mind ever since we were tiny, since the beginning of our life. And so it's getting to know the, the different microbes that we're carrying around on our skin or getting to know what's in a drop of water. It, it's always been there, so this is a, a task of, of getting to know it, how it works. And then through that, that knowledge and, uh, say, beginning to understand these things that already have an influence over the mind uh, and an influence over our life, then we can, uh, we can start to, to work with them. And so that... Uh, that's a, a, a very common experience, and um, and so uh, uh, those of you who might have been feeling that, like, oh, <laughs> I was fine before I came to the monastery, and uh, you know now I'm this sort of seething mass of anger and laziness and greed and confusion. Uh, it can be deceptive. It's just like looking at a microscope and, and looking uh, at uh, at our mind and our tendencies with a, a, a high magnification, and also the tendency to dwell upon the things that are, are negative, that are, that are not, uh, say, beneficial or helpful. And um, the, the attention uh, has a, a way of going to the things that are difficult or painful or where, um, uh, where the, uh, the, the friction or the, the, the tension <coughs> forms in the mind. And uh, we can often miss a lot of the, those good qualities, those things that are, are genuinely beneficial and, and helpful, things that are very noble. And uh, I think the other day I was quoting uh, uh, Ajahn Chah giving encouragement to the young Ajahn Sumato when he thought uh, you know, that his mind was so poisonous and agitated and confused that you know, he was polluting the atmosphere of Wapapong and he should go away because he's just so, got so much jealousy and anger and restlessness and that uh, he, uh, he would be better off just being somewhere else because he was lowering, lowering the standard of uh, mental states at, at Wapapong. And then, uh, as I said the other day, Lumpur Chao's comment was, to him was, Sumato, if you were really such an awful person, you wouldn't want to come anywhere near a monastery, let alone actually be a monk and live in one. You know, like be realistic, and you know you're a good person, Sumato. And he, and it was quite a shock to him. He said, you know, that uh, if you were really that terrible, uh, and you had no good qualities, you wouldn't want to be anywhere near here. You would, you would anyone anyone being good and kind and unselfish, you'd run away from them and uh, and escape. Similarly, um, I've often mentioned a a time when we had a, a retreat, uh, one of the very first community retreats. Uh, Back in uh, in Chithurst in about 1980 or 81, it was um, we were all, we only had one room <laughs> that we could gather in. That what's now the the reception room in the house. The the shrine room had a big hole in the floor, and so that was not uh, usable. The dry rot had eaten a, a large uh, section of the floorboards out of that room, and so we just had the one big room. The the reception room was our was our shrine room and uh, eating place and everything. And so we were having our, our first uh, community retreat for a, a, about a two weeks in the wintertime one year. And um, after a, a week or so, you know, the, we're, all, we're all in there together, about 25 or 30 of us all squished in. And uh, um, Lumpur could easily detect there was a certain amount of 
tension and sort of striving in the air and the sort of grim look, the grim expression on people's faces, like practicing or practicing or practicing. And so you didn't have to be too psychic to see that there was a bit of, of um, negativity or, or stress or tension in the air. And so uh, he gave this very, very helpful reflection uh, about looking at the, the wholesome, positive things about, uh, about your life and what you're doing. And it really did have a big impact on, on all of us, yeah, because he uh, and he would give uh, Dhamma teaching or reflections a couple of times a day, two or three times a day, every day, on that retreat. And so he said, um, yeah, "Please reflect on the fact that none of you have killed anybody during this week together. Yeah, all of you have refrained uh, from murder. This is great. This is more than many people around the world can say they they have done. That none of you have." Uh, <laughs> have actually attacked each other, you haven't even physically harmed each other, let alone killed anyone. Well done! Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And, you know, uh, he could be quite funny and, and crack these sort of um, ridiculous jokes uh, fairly regularly. <laughs> a slightly wacky sense of humour. But as he continued, you, you really got a sense of what he was pointing to. So that, that's, you know, there's, there's a group of people, 25, 30 people gathered in this place. How amazing! that none of you have acted in any kind of violent way. You're also not even talking to each other. You're restraining your speech, so you're not even attacking each other with words. Amazing, wonderful, this is great, yeah, good job. This is, this is not a small thing. This is not, this is not a, 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 a minor achievement. Satu, satu, well done. And then none of you have stolen anything. This is extraordinary, the amount of restraint. We're all living a renunciate life. We have almost uh, no possessions apart from our robes and our arms bowls. And, and none of you are taking anything from anyone else. Well done, well done. And celibacy. We're, we're all living here together and everyone is celibate. That's amazing. Well done. This is extraordinary restraint and, and uh, say nobility in your intention and living with each other in such close proximity and, uh, and being so, so disciplined as to not follow sexual impulses. Well done, well done. And he was kind of playing with it and just sort of uh, uh, overstating things uh, in, in some ways. But also he was right on the mark. It's like, yeah, that's not, uh, and it was as if for the last week none of us had actually noticed the, the sort of wholesome qualities or what had actually brought us there to, to practice meditation, to be nuns and monks uh, uh, living in that place uh, and to be uh, endeavouring to train the mind because all of our attention was going oh my mind just won't concentrate or I'm filled with annoyance about this uh, this person who's um, just, who's uh, just so irritating <laughs> and this filled with these um, uh, say afflictive impulses and such like and during that retreat um, there was uh, an anagarika just to share with you <laughs> So I was, a very, I was a very junior monk. I think I had one, uh, uh, one reigns at that point. I was a, a one-year-old monk. There was an anagarika. Was, and we were all so tightly packed that we were all just sort of in, 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 kind of in lines together. So this anagarika was sitting right in front of me. And when, uh, he had quite good concentration. But um, when he was uh, on, his, uh, on his breath, so we, Lumpur was te uh, teaching a lot of mindfulness of breathing, so this Anagarika had quite good concentration. <coughs> but when he was concentrated, then his breath would be very deliberate. So it's right in front of me, well, he's sitting sort of, so I was looking into his, his, his left ear, but he was uh, sitting right in front of me, and, and so he would breathe 
to his very, very loud breathing. And so, uh, and then when he would when he would get distracted, then his breath would go quiet. So, oh good, he's <laughs> he's he's gone off. Uh, you know, he's drifted off. He's. But then he he'd notice he was distracted, and then he sit up straight and then concentrate on his breath again, and uh, go back to the sort of snorting uh, breath mode. So, um, uh, so I was experiencing a lot of aversion to this particular person breathing. Why, why does he have to? Why does he have to breathe like that? You know, doesn't he know how annoying it is? And eventually, uh, I, I developed a practice of mindfulness of somebody else's breathing. <laughs> because his was much louder than mine. And I thought, well, if I'm paying attention to his breath anyway, I might as well just forget mine and just listen to his and just use that as my meditation object. So that's a, a, an example of an upaya, a skillful means. Like, uh, if, if your breath is not accessible for somebody else's, is, then use that. So uh, it was a very helpful, uh, a very helpful thing in, uh, to to bring up to our attention that um, uh, we forget the the good that we're doing. We forget the 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 noble intentions that we have in coming to to live here, whether we're committed um, uh, to the monastic life or whether we're a, a lay person who's been living here for a long time or coming to help for the winter retreat, whatever it might be. We can overlook our noble intentions and our skillful uh, qualities because they don't really stand out. And the attention goes to being lazy, being uh, angry, being selfish, being, uh, uh, being fearful, being worried and so on because that's a bit more sharp-edged, more easily gets our attention. So it is helpful in that, in that respect and to be aware, oh, this is the, the microscope effect. <laughs> But uh, the, uh, to take a step back and to also consider the 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 good that we are doing and the the, uh, the say nobility or the skillfulness of our intentions. Well, they, this is called chaganusati, or recollecting your own goodness, not to be proud or inflated or sort of competing for the sort of monk of the month award or anything like that. But uh, simply to um, to recognise, yeah, that's that's actually. Not a bad thing. It's kind of uh, um, marvelous that we can live with such wholesome and skillful intentions and be guided in that way. So the um, first of these uh, passages about skillful means uh, is about physical pain. It begins with Lumpur Chah speaking. Sometimes he may break out in a sweat, big beads as large as corn kernels rolling down your chest. But when you've passed through painful feeling once, then you'll know all about it. Keep working at it. Don't push yourself too much, but keep steadily practicing. Physical discomfort arising during sitting meditation can range from a dull ache to cramps to agonizing pain. As the discomfort is dependent upon the meditator's choice of posture, he or she has the power to bring it to an end by moving. The question arises as to whether the meditator in pain should change posture, and if so, at which point. Lumpur's usual advice was that meditators should not move out of a reactivity bred from fear or anxiety. At first, they should attempt to turn attention from the pain by repeatedly returning to the meditation object. If that became impossible, Meditators should take the physical sensation of pain itself as their meditation object. 
In the case that mindfulness was still not strong enough to deal with the pain, then the meditator should change posture. Lumpur cautioned his disciples given to pushing the limits of their endurance to ensure that their enthusiasm was always governed by wisdom. Too much willful endurance of physical pain in meditation by a beginner could gradually lead to a sense of dreariness, an aversion to practice, or in extreme cases, a visit to the doctors. That's uh, unfortunately rather common. <laughs> Knees and backs uh, get, uh, get a lot of punishment through uh, overzealous uh, meditation and uh, uh, the unskillful handling of pain. On some occasions, Longpo urged disciples to persevere right through the dark tunnel of painful feeling and emerge on the other side. Meditators who can endure pain to the point at which it reaches a crescendo, like a, a high peak, and then dissolves, experience a great rapture and enter a state of deep calm. Having gone beyond, quote-unquote, painful feeling in this way, meditators' fear of pain, and thus of death, is usually much diminished. Even more importantly, the natural separation of the physical feeling of pain and the awareness of it provides a profound understanding of the impersonality of feeling. The realization of how much of what was assumed to be physical pain is, in fact, the instinctive emotional reaction to the pain, and that it can be released through mindfulness, that can be the grounds for a significant breakthrough in practice. But once again, in a short passage, there's a lot, uh, a lot here, uh, a lot that is very useful. Um, one of the ways that I like to talk about, because this is a very, very frequent question, probably many of you have asked me of it, uh, asked it of me in the past, and uh, it comes up in almost every retreat uh, that one teaches, um, is uh, how much pain should you endure? What's the? Is it okay to 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 shift the posture? And uh, so this is the advice that that I, I usually give, as he describes here. So. Um, when the physical pain arises, to, to try and work with that for at least a few minutes to relax not just the attitude towards the pain, so just to be more accepting or non, um, not afraid or aversive towards it, but just trying to appreciate it as it is, just to know it as it is without um, an emotional reaction. But <clears throat> then to also be... Um, uh, sensitive to the, the limits of the, of the body. And so this um, uh, process he describes here, first of all, just trying to let go of the pain if it's not avoidable or, or, won't, uh, or keeps grabbing the attention, then you take the, the mind off whatever other object you've been focusing on, say the uh, mindfulness of the, of the breath or listening to the inner sound or uh, say if you're trying to practice an open awareness, and you bring the attention right onto the place where you feel the pain in your, your knees or your, your back or wherever it might be. And you make that pain, just like I did with that Anagarika's breath. You, make, <laughs> you, you just make that the object. So rather than being getting in the, uh, something getting in the way of your meditation object, you, you put it to work. You, you make it the object. And then, as he says, if uh, even by putting the attention onto it, then um, it's uh, still, uh, say... Uh, hard to get any perspective on, and uh, <coughs> the um, the encouragement is to say change the posture, but to change it carefully and mindfully, and then bring the attention back to the meditation object once again. So, what I, I like to uh, add on to that um, as a principle, and I feel this is, is good to bear in mind, is 
um, to to look at the attitude towards pain and to to um, be relaxing the attitude towards it, relaxing the muscles of the, in the body around the area where the pain is being formed in your back or your shoulders or your legs or wherever it might be. So you're relaxing the body as much as you can, you're relaxing the attitude as much as you can. And then <clears throat> in that way, with a, a more, uh, a, I say, open, relaxed attitude, then you find that generally, for most people, you get more of a of a, uh, an unbiased sense of the body's own capacity. So in a way you can recognize when it's not just the fact that it's painful, makes you want to move, but there's a sense, okay, that joint really is being strained, or that, that really has, uh, the, the, there's, a, there's a tightening up there that is not, uh, is, uh, is not going to be helpful, it's going to be something that's going to cause more problems. And so that when you see that the body is reaching a point where something is really being damaged or, or really being hurt or stressed, um, then that's the, the, the time to move. And it's out of a, a kindness towards the body rather than an aversion towards the pain. So the, the motivation to move isn't fear or negativity, but the motivation to move is kindness. It's like, okay, the body's... It's reached its limit. It can't do more than this. Okay, uh, uh, just as if it was a, a a child thing, you know, that's really um, very very tired of a uh, you know, if you're a school teacher, then the, and the child is very tired of the particular uh, task you've given them. And it's like, can we stop now? And you realize, okay, that's definitely enough. The 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 uh, the kid is is definitely finished. It's not a matter of just. Being patient, they're, okay, they're they're done. So it's time to put things away and and end the end the <coughs> lesson or end whatever uh, task you were doing. So that it's a an act of kindness, recognizing the limits of the system, um, and that's not weakness. That's wisdom, I would say. And so that uh, sometimes we can be very idealistic. Uh, we have an, you know, I want to sit like a Buddha image. I want to be in full lotus for you know, an hour and a half. You know, take no prisoners. I shall not move from this spot until my blood dries up and my bones turn to dust and so on. Um, so that uh, even though the Buddha made that kind of resolution under the Bodhi tree, as Ajahn Chah would say, when people would make those kind of resolutions, he says, you're not a Buddha, you're not even a small Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> so don't, you know, you, if you had the barometer of the Buddha, then okay, but you don't, you're not even a, you're not even a small Buddha, so just chill. The, the uh, you know, cool cool it down just a uh, long long kind of uh, uh, climb down off your your sort of enthusiastic project and just be a bit more realistic. So this um, is like I was talking about with eating the other day that the the body has its own in intelligence as to how much food we really need or, or with sleeping how much rest we really need. Similarly, the body has its own intelligence with respect to pain. That if you, if you pay attention and let the mind attune to the, the experience, then that, that intuitive sense, of, okay, that's enough, it's definitely time, uh, time to move now, that can become clear. And you can recognize in that moment that with uh, a, a mindfulness and, and wisdom that, okay, that's, it's not me being afraid of this, it's not just the inner legal team weaseling out of <laughs> trying to get away from an uncomfortable state. It's just, no, the body really has had enough here. It's pushed beyond its, its limit, and so this is time to, to change. 
<coughs> and just like with food or with sleep, it takes quite a long time to get a sense for how that works. And to, you know, you make a few mistakes along the way, but slowly and surely you, you, you learn how it, um, uh, how it fits together, how it works, like learning to ride a bicycle or learning a musical instrument or learning a language, you know, slowly but with re- repeated effort, you slowly get the hang of it and you, you feel how the system works from a very non-conceptual and intuitive, intuitive way. The, um, um, sometimes it can be very useful to be very resolute and say, okay, I'm, um, I'm getting a bit too uh, reactive. I think I'm, um, I'm getting very fearful of pain or I'm getting very anxious and very worried. Um, so uh, uh, we can sometimes make a, a decision, okay, I really want to uh, make more of an effort to, to deal with painful feeling. And that can be very worthwhile. That can be something that's useful because, um, uh, as, as he points out in that, the, this uh, last passage here, uh, getting to know the difference between physical pain and the instinctive emotional reaction to the pain, that's a very important thing. Like uh, uh, when, um, when Lumpur Sumedho first came to this country in, the, in 1977, he'd never been on a meditation retreat before. It, it's like in the forest tradition, they don't have the sort of um, silent retreats, like uh, the, the, the sort of 10 day retreat model didn't really exist. That was something that was invented in Burma in the 1950s. And, um, and so that the, the main focus, I mean, they would have periods of time with lots of formal practice together, but it was not the sort of silent retreat or when just sitting and walking all day long um, in a systematized way, or certainly not with, with lay people. So when, uh, when Ajahn Sumedho first came to England and people were interested to have, uh, have him lead retreats, he didn't really know what a 10-day retreat was. So he thought, well, I better... First of all, he was like, this is a waste of time. Monastic life is the true, this is the true way. And, and so he was a bit... Um, kind of old school, as they say. Uh, but then he, he, he talked with people and realized, actually, this sounds like these 10-day these retreats are pretty useful. And given the working week and the way people's lives are, this could be a, a valuable thing. So he decided he would learn how to, how to do 10-day retreats. And so he, he signed up for uh, one, I think, with one or two of the other Sangha members from, um, from Hampstead, and uh, they did a 10-day uh, retreat with John Coleman, who was a teacher out of the Ubakin tradition. And they would have, uh, just with, with uh, so Goenkaji was another one of the, the people from that same group, um, uh, Mother Sayama. And so that, that uh, uh, every day on this retreat, uh, I think it was the, uh, the early afternoon meditation, they would have a quote-unquote maximum determination session. And so that was... Um, you, know, you had to sit uh, for an hour and absolutely no moving for any reason whatsoever. So maximum determination. And so even though Ajahn Sumedha was very, uh, could sit usually for quite a long time in the full lotus without, without moving um, and was a quite an accomplished yogi, he did a lot of hatha yoga and was, was really quite, uh, quite flexible. He said just those, those words, maximum determination, had this... this um, uh, very negative effect on him. So he said within 10 minutes of the maximum determination starting, he was in complete agony. You know, whereas normally he'd be quite fine for, you know, for the 
45 minutes or an hour. It wouldn't, wouldn't really be uncomfortable at all, but just that sense. Maximum determination, you can't move. So that's a, a good example of, of, uh, of attitude being um, a, a major factor. And I had a similar experience myself here um, in one of our, our winter retreats, and I was in a uh, the um, I was in a, a, a very uh, zealous period of my monastic life, um, so I, I was generally um, trying to do as many ascetic practices as possible. I didn't lie down to, for about three years, uh, and I was uh, had all kinds of of um, disciplines around uh, um, everything, <laughs> food and sleep and and so forth. And so we had the winter retreat. This at uh, this time, the um, we were using the uh, retreat center shrine room as our meditation hall. The temple didn't exist in those days, and this was our, our, our eating hall. And so we used the retreat center shrine room for, as the the, um, the retreat uh, space, the meditation space. And so we're a month or, or so into the retreat, and so uh, and every so often we would have these four-hour sittings. That was a fairly standard part of the winter retreat back in those days. And the, the rules for the four-hour sitting was uh, everyone has to be there, no excuses for anyone to be away, begins at one o'clock, finishes at five o'clock, and you have to stay on your mat. You, could, you can move your posture, you can stand up, and, but everyone's got to be on their mat for the four hours. So that was a, back in those days, that was a standard feature of the uh, winter retreat. So we'd have a, you know, a few of those, maybe um, <coughs> three or four, maybe half a dozen of those four-hour sittings during the... It used to be just a two-month-long period, the winter retreat. So uh, I, as I said, I was in this zealous period of my, my meditation uh, practice, my monastic life. So um, we were scheduled to have a four-hour sitting that afternoon. And, uh, and so I thought... Well, you know, Lumpur Chai used to, to sit all night without moving, and that was a standard procedure. The very, very first rains retreat that Lumpur Chai led a community, it had an obligatory uh, all-night sitting uh, every day for the whole three months of the rains retreat, and no one was allowed to move for the whole night. <laughs> so like a 12-hour sitting every night, no one can move. And there were some survivors. <laughs> The, uh, but even here, at the, at the end of that retreat, realized that was a bit much. <laughs> but, uh, so uh, <clears throat> I think that, that there's accounts of that elsewhere in this book. Um, but I thought, if he can sit for 12 hours every night for, for three months, then I can at least manage four hours without moving um, for, for an afternoon. You know, that that's, should be pretty, pretty uh, uh, easy-peasy. In comparison, and so then, but just like Ajahn Sumedha with the maximum determination, as soon as that thought formed in my my mind, it's like, no, oh, don't be an idiot, you're a fool. What are you doing this to yourself for? And you know, you're crazy. So my mind was complaining and worrying, and sure enough, as <coughs> and uh, I arrived about ten minutes early, got onto my my mat, and, and even before one o'clock had arrived, I was in agony. <laughs> so it's like, okay, <laughs> preemptive agony. Uh, and so, <coughs> for the, <coughs> the first hour, I just um, sat there in, in a lot of pain, just feeling sorry for myself. Oh, this is so awful, this is so painful. And I got three more hours to go, trying not to look at my watch, but failing. <laughs> and um, so then, uh, after about an hour of uh, this sort of aching, uh, painful misery, 
I realized that I'd spent that whole time there and there was 60 other people in that room and I had, uh, had, had not a single thought of concern or, or even appreciation that anybody else was there at all. Just that, it's like, is that amazing? A whole hour has gone by and I've had uh, I'm just completely obsessed with me and my pain. That, well, if I'm going to be here for another three hours and it's going to be uncomfortable, at least I might as, as well do something useful rather than just thinking about me and my pain and uh, and just wallowing in this these uh, uh, painful mind states and, and painful physical states. So um, I started to practice loving kindness. I thought, well, at least I can I can do that. So uh, just it just that, that moment of opening my eyes and looking around the room. All oh, right, there's all these other monks and nuns here. Right, <laughs> there's, there's 60 of us gathered together in this space. All these lay people here for the winter retreat. Okay, I can at least spread some loving-kindness to everybody around in the room, because it was clear also everyone's really working hard at their practice. So then I started to do that, and then lo and behold, after 20 minutes, half an hour of spreading loving-kindness, I thought, oh, my legs don't seem to be so painful. Well, that's interesting. Oh, well, let's carry on. So doing more uh, metta-bhavana, loving-kindness meditation. So then by the time the, the, another hour had gone by, it's like, oh, my legs don't hurt at all. This is, oh, this is, this is a really neat trick. And as soon as it was a, a neat trick, <laughs> it was like all the, the clamps came back on again. As soon as the inner weasel, the, the inner legal team was like, oh, this is a, I can sneak around it, I can avoid it. As me trying to get something for myself, then it, it got, became painful. So I realized, no, it has to be completely sincere. There has to be a, a genuine um, a, abandoning of, of self-concern and, a, and a filling the heart with well-wishing. And then that change of attitude really brought about a, a profound relaxation. And so when Lumpur rang the bell at five o'clock, ama- amazingly uh, to myself, uh, the, in, in my mind, when he rang the bell, my first thought was like, oh, I was enjoying that. I was disappointed. Then about three seconds later, look, <laughs> don't think about it, just get up. <laughs> Stretch your legs. and uh, But... Um, it was very, uh, it was very impactful, a very insightful moment. What a difference the attitude makes, and then not just having loving kindness towards the other people in the room, but just uh, generally uh, that attitude of a- acceptance and, and openness has a profoundly relaxing uh, effect, both on the body and on the mind. <laughs> so this uh, this principle is called. Uh, the uh, the two arrows. So there's a, a short discourse in the Sangyutta Nikaya called the Sala Sutta. Sala is the word for an, uh, for an arrow. S A L L A. Sala. Um, and the Buddha is it's a uh, the Buddha uses a military uh, an analogy in this respect. He was a soldier before he was a monk. Not, people don't always appreciate that. So there's a lot of military language in his uh, his teachings. So. He said it's like a, a, a soldier on a battlefield being shot by an arrow. So physical pain is like being hit by an arrow. No one can avoid that, whether you are um, an ordinary, uh, unenlightened person, you're an enlightened person. If there's a body and a mind, physical pain is unavoidable. Necessarily it's going to be there. That's the first arrow. No one can avoid the first arrow. The second arrow is what the mind adds to it. As Ajahn Jayasara puts it here, the... Um, instinctive emotional reaction to the pain so 
negotiating, resenting, fearing, hating, waiting for it to be over, trying to get away from it, all of that sort of cluster of, of uh, aversive and fearful feelings around pain. That's the second arrow. And so that, uh, that can be avoided. That second arrow can be dodged. So when we talk about the ending of suffering, Dukkha Niroda, it's all about the second arrow. It's not the first arrow. You know, the Buddha himself had chronic back pain. And so when he was an old man, according to the suttas, it lay, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta opens with him saying how his body is like an old cart, like a, a, an old wagon or a wheelbarrow held together with wire and string and <coughs> patched up. He says uh, the, only, the only way he can experience comfort is to completely absorb his mind into emptiness. So it, by, only by disconnecting completely from the sense world could he be comfortable. As soon as his attention was connected to the seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and so on, he was in pain. And uh, so there's frequent references uh, when he was old to that, um, that condition. Sometimes he's giving a Dhamma talk and he says, Sariputta, my back is paining me. I'm going to go and lie down. Uh, the assembly is still awake. You, you carry on giving them a Dhamma talk. You know, I'm going to go and rest. And, and there's no sort of pretending it's not real pain or it's just a teaching device. No, it's pain. It's like he, he's uh, feeling that, that strain in the system. So he goes and rests and, and stretches his back out because it's, it's painful to the extent that it's, um, uh, say, getting more, uh, <coughs> getting a lot of his attention. So that um, principle of the two arrows is extro- extremely important. So that, as they say, it's one of those um, San Francisco Bay Area bumper stickers that they have. Uh, they specialize in philosophical bumper stickers. They kind of put in the back of, of your car so that you're. Uh, offering advice to people behind you in the, in the <laughs> on the highway, and it was uh, pain is inev- pain is unavoidable, suffering is is optional. Put that on a t-shirt as well. <laughs> so pain is definitely part of our life, but the suffering on account of it is optional. So the second um, arrow is what the the ending of suffering of the the uh, four noble truths is about, and so that that capacity of that there can be physical pain there i mean like the experience i was describing in the retreat center shrine room it's like yeah the the pain was not there by the end of it but even when it's there we realize that it can absolutely not be a problem it's just a, a an ache it's just a a, a a feeling of tension or stressing and if the body isn't really being damaged then we can be uh, be at peace with it Pain is there, but it's absolutely not a problem. And the older we get, and the more aches and pains that we have, the more valuable that is as a skill. Uh, even if you're younger, you, know, you can have all kinds of, of aches and pains and injuries and so forth. Um, but as we get older, they multiply. Uh, so be, please be assured of that. That's just the natural course of things. But the, the issue is that uh, the... If that attitude is trained, if the mind is really trained in a skillful way, then regardless of how much pain there is, the mind can be completely at peace with it. It's also said, um, it's more of a commentarial tradition, but it's said that um, the Buddha also had a, a constant headaches uh, in the, the latter years of his life 
from a, when he was endeavoring to stop Prince Vidudaba from going to massacre the Sakyan people. Um, this prince who was a, a son of, of King Pasenadi, but his mother had been a, was supposed to be a Sakyan princess, but she was actually a slave girl that the Sakyans had sort of dressed up and, and presented as a princess um, because they, they thought that the Sakyans were, were superior to the, um, uh, the, co- uh, the coastlands. Yeah. And uh, they didn't want to... to um, but they were supposed to be offering a princess to be a, a, a wife of a King Pasenadi. And they thought, well, we're, we're, our Sakins are far superior to him, so we'll, we'll just uh, get a slave girl, dress her up as a princess, teach her how to, to behave properly, and then, and then uh, send her to, uh, to King Pasenadi, because we wouldn't want to lower ourselves by one of our Sakin princesses actually being, um, having to stoop to be married to a Kosalan. So this turned out to be a mistake, <laughs> and uh, uh, in in many many ways. And so uh, the, she bore a child, Prince Vidudaba, and um, when uh, he was sixteen, he was given a, a, a permission to to lead a, 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 a an embassy from from um, uh, from Savati uh, to go to visit the Sakyan kingdom. So he thought he was going back to visit his mother's. His mother's kingdom, and so when he he went, leading this sort of uh, the uh, this kind of uh, delegation from from the kingdom of Kosala, and they they treated him very politely. Um, but uh, after they had the embassy had left, and they were heading back to to Savati, uh, the story goes that one of the uh, attendants had forgotten his sword in, in the shrine room, in the in the kind of the throne room went back to collect his sword and he saw they were washing the seat that, that Vidudaba had been sitting on. And they said, oh, why are you, why are you washing the seat? And they said, oh, well, because that son of a slave girl was sitting on there, so, you know, we've got to, we've got to kind of ritually cleanse it, otherwise it'll pollute anybody who sits on there. Son of a slave girl? Really? <laughs> Tell me more. So then they found <coughs> out that uh, the, um, this um, poor girl had been... Uh, Substituted and uh, uh, had to play the part of a princess. The the news reached Prince Vidudaba, who was incensed, and then he was determined to have revenge on the Sakins. Anyway, long story. I'll trim it down a bit. <laughs> so he, uh, 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 having got back to to Savati, and also uh, within a few years gaining strength and becoming more powerful and influential, then. Uh, launched an attack on the Sakyan. So he took an army to the north to, to attack the Sakyan kingdom. And the Buddha saw this was happening, and so he sat down by the roadside. And there's this incidences where Vidudaba comes with his army and the Buddha's sitting under the shade of a tree uh, by the roadside. And then the... Um, uh, and then the uh, well, he was sitting in the shade of a tree, but the, 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 the sun... The, uh, had moved, uh, uh, and the shadow of the tree had moved, and so the Buddha was out in the sunlight, and he was using that being out, being uh, in the heat of the day, as a way of saying, um, you know, to Vidudabhi, you're you've left the cool shade of understanding, and you're in the in the blazing heat of, of anger and revenge, and so um, just as being out in the in the hot sun, you know, gives you a headache, then you being in the the blazing heat of anger and vengefulness. Is going to be bringing you suffering. Uh, 
And uh, so then Virudhaba then retreated and came back and retreated and came back and and that happened three times over and eventually the uh, the, the fourth time he came the Buddha couldn't put, turn him back and so he attacked the Sakyans and and carried out this mass his huge massacre this kind of slaughter of the Sakyan people. So the story goes that from that time the Buddha had a, a headache for the rest of his life from that from that. Uh, that incident by the roadside trying to turn Vidudava back. And um, so that's a more of a commentarial tradition, but uh, that's um, uh, also uh, could well have a, a lot of truth to it. The, the attack on the Sakyans was historically very, uh, part of the, the, the canonical uh, accounts, um, uh, but this uh, the uh, account of the Buddha having a, a constant headache, so he had back pain and a headache, <laughs> in his old age but he knew how not to make a problem out of it and to um, to take that as an example so when we are having other aches and pains and we find ourselves fearful we're worried what it's going to turn into am I never going to get over this um, uh, um, th- those of the those who are in chairs feeling like am I ever going to be on the floor ever again yeah. You know, that's a, in that moment. That's the, the the anguishing is the second arrow. You know the the and say well okay the, this is uh, there's some pain in the body. It's got its limitations. Do I need to add to it by creating anxiety? Do I need to create aversion and, and fear and so on? So that uh, getting a sense of, of avoiding the second arrow and how to do that is uh, extraordinarily helpful us and that um, also the clarity that comes from say appreciating the first arrow in, in a non-reactive way helps us to attune to what the limits of the body are so when you do need to change posture or get on a chair you can that's just what you need to do so you do it so any thoughts questions reflections on all of that don't be shy any of the, the uh, other monastics, maybe? Just to all? No? Okay, Vinny, go ahead. Um, is there only one arrow for emotional pain? Um, well, the, the, the actual sutta itself refers to physical pain. It's specific. Um, it's a very short sutta, so it only refers to physical pain. But... Um, my experience is that it, that it applies absolutely identically to emotional pain. And so that you can have, um, say, sadness, like a, a feeling of grief, uh, someone in your family who's died, uh, someone close to you, um, and there can be a, like a strong emotional pain because of, of that, that, someone who's dear to you has, has just died. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's emotionally painful, but the the mind can uh, can refrain from creating suffering around that, like, and the the, the dukkha is like it shouldn't be this way, or um, what am I going to do with this, or uh, why should why did this have to happen, or the 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 again the, the agitation and the complications that the mind creates around that. Uh, again, there's an interesting um, passage in one of the suttas where the Buddha talks about uh, his feelings when Sariputra and Moggallana have died. 
and uh, he makes a comment. He, uh, he's uh, teaching with a, a large assembly of people, and he says, um, e even though there's a large number of people gathered here, it's as if the assembly is empty because Sariputra and Moggallana have passed away. So he makes that comment himself, that he, he feels a sense of an absence or loss. Again, he's not complaining or, 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 uh, or upset even, but he feels that. And, it's, and, I, and I think it's significant that that's recorded in the suttas and, and has been passed down to the current age. It wasn't like something that, oh, we, we can't let the Buddha show weakness or he should always be totally equanimous or something. And, but uh, that I feel it's actually a strength of the teachings that they, they show that kind of a human side of things. And that uh, um, if, uh, if we um, explore the mind and <coughs> see how it relates to those different emotional states, uh, then the, it, it, and as I was saying uh, about how to develop mindfulness of, of emotion by using the physical sensations of emotion, that can be, also can be a, an approach to it. But um, what it helps to the mind to do is that it becomes uh, far more open to feeling what, what, uh, what's present, what the emotion might be, whether it's anger or fear or excitement or grief or, or uh, whatever. And not, f not having to push it away, not trying to switch it off or, or dumb it down or get rid of it or escape from it, but rather to, to know that... Um, that emotional state to know how it feels, the physical sensations of it, or that um, the to the the full emotional tone of it. You're receiving it fully, but the mind's not reacting to it. It's not trying to get rid of it or saying it shouldn't be there. And so that it, it's kind of you know, it's easier to learn with physical pain and then to translate it into the emotional pain area, because. Uh, if physical pain is, is painful, obviously, and it's very tangible, but it's less complicated, whereas emotional pain tends to be tied up with personality and history and relationships and uh, the kind of uh, uh, the story making around uh, emotions is, is much more intense and com com uh, complicating, whereas physical pain is more like, ow, my knee, or ow, you know, my back, you know. It's not complicated. It's very. It can be intense, but it's not. Uh, hasn't got a lot of story making around it, and that. Not that that's bad or wrong, but the mind tends to get lost in the stories. That's that's what happens. John, yes. We've passing some California bumper sticker wisdom onto NHS because they have very unhelpful uh, <laughs> posters around in waiting rooms. Yeah. When I go from the appointment there is a poster so as I'm sitting there waiting there's a poster with a, with a figure sitting bent over um, at the computer and then it says back pain doesn't kill it's tortures <laughs> so it's not very helpful is it? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, some cheerful Somebody probably got paid fifty thousand pounds for that slogan. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. There's also a theory, I think it's more like psychological theory, that trauma can get locked into the body. Mm -hmm. uh, have you experienced that? Or have you met people who can... Uh, like the pain which is due to a trauma in the past that can be <coughs> treated by focusing on that pain and uh, resolving the trauma this way? Uh, to an extent. I mean, I'm not terribly experienced with that, but... Um, that uh, certainly does seem to be the case for some people. And some some traumas get sort of locked into the body, and that uh, that um, and then approaching it, uh, those uh, um, those issues through the body and through the, the body's um, uh, say stressing and tensing and and being knotted up in various in various ways um, uh, that. So that what they call um, massage therapy is very uh, very big in California, and a lot of different kinds of, of body work. Um, it's a very um, specific way of connecting the physical therapy side of it with with a psychotherapy side. So there's there's a whole field of, of of work and training in that. So quite a few of the people that we would meet on a regular basis. Did that kind of work as, as therapists or massage therapists or um, one uh, one fellow who was very closely associated with a Bhagiri monastery um, had been a meditating for years uh, and, and so he had and also had done a lot of different kinds of um, uh, osteopathy training and uh, physiotherapy training and, and body work um, physical therapy training so he had this he developed his, his own method which was called insight. Bodhi work, as in B O D H I, kind of kind of California marketing. So, uh, but he was he was very good, and uh, and that was exactly that kind of principle to trying to help approach people's mental blockages through the physical attributes of it. So, um, uh, you know, different things work for different people. So that I said that every kind of trauma is accessible through the body. And you just have to find. Where the knot is, and then you know, work out, work, work the knots out, and then the trauma will be resolved. I think that's saying too much. Uh, it's it's not that that simple. But the, those things are are related, and that they can be um, um, there. There can be a close connection between what what, what the body remembers and uh, how particular um, say states or attitudes are. Like a, they become physical attitudes as well as mental attitudes. But, but uh, I'm not—I'm certainly not an, an expert in that. But um, it, uh, there's a whole field of of, um, of uh, sort of spiritual approach around that. I remember uh, there was when I uh, was living up at, at Harnham. Uh, um, there was one uh, anagarika we had in the community and. Uh, he had um, a, 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 had had a lot of psychological trauma in the past. He, he was an adopted child, didn't know whose whose birth parents were, and that was just a really huge issue in his life. And and uh, one of the the reasons why he'd come into the monastic training was this sort of horrible childhood that he had and a sense of alienation. And uh, I remember quite we had a uh, he, he was there with us for the for. A, uh, a winter retreat time, and um, somewhere during the 
the, the meditation one day, there was this literally a kind of loud, <laughs> this kind of loud crack. And they said, what the heck was that? And it, it was, uh, seemingly, it was Anagarika Pete's back, kind of, and he said, yeah, it felt like um, something that had been tied up for a hundred years just let go. And it was, and it was, uh, it literally, you, you know, you heard the sound, like a sort of, not like an iceberg falling off it, you know. but it was a, it was a, a very audible crunch as something relaxed and let go. And then, but also attitudinally, within himself, it's like there was something that had, the meditation had sort of reached into a, a certain part of his, his, his memory and his, his kind of horrible uh, childhood experiences. And um, something let, let go. And, and you, could, you could hear the letting go happening it was, uh, from the outside. <laughs> but from the inside, also, he was just... <sighs> whoa. You know, you know, almost like he didn't even realize quite the extent of what he was carrying around and holding on until you know, something... Uh, something relaxed and some kind of <coughs> knotted up uh, tension was was uh, let go of. Um, I hope you wouldn't mind me telling the story, but uh, it was a, it was a very helpful moment for him. So seven o'clock has come round already. These minutes fly by. I'll leave it there for today.